this prayer, we, we, what we have just confessed in this song, that you are the ancient of, of days who has received the Son of Man upon his finished work on Calvary, having resurrected from the dead and ascended before the Father to receive the rightful inheritance upon his work in redemption, even claim to all the kingdoms and authorities, powers, rulers, nations, tribes, and tongues of this earth. And now before your right hand stands Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the champion of our salvation, laying claim to all this earth and all history and putting every enemy under his feet until the last enemy is forever, finally, and ultimately defeated, death itself. We worship the one who has risen from the dead, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We worship the one who has raised us from spiritual death and will raise us from the grave on the second resurrection, our Lord and Savior, the death conqueror, Jesus Christ. Today, as we turn to his holy word, I pray that you would open our hearts to appreciate the glorious, immutable, powerful, inerrant, unchanging word that was spoken from ages past, fulfilled in the fullness of time, and is now going forward according to prophecy, laying claim to every elect soul from the far reaches of this planet until the fullness of your redemptive purposes, dear Father, is complete. We count it a privilege to gather in the name of Jesus. We count it a privilege to do so with our blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is a great honor to sing these worship songs to the only one who is worthy of them. And I pray now, as we approach your precious and powerful word, that you would open our hearts to receive its eternal truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, what a glorious privilege and a gift the Spirit has given us to gather in the name of Christ today. And as we do so, let us set our attention, focus our souls upon the glory of Christ revealed through the pages of Genesis, continuing in our series following the generations of Jacob, beginning in Genesis 37. Today's consideration will be verses 1 through 11. So our text today is Genesis 37, 1 through 11. As you're turning there, I'll give you a title and an aim, and then let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. The title of this morning's message is Joseph's Calling. There's a shift in the text that focuses our attention on some important things that are communicated through the story, the biography, the account of Joseph. A lot of pages of Genesis are dedicated to the legacy of this man, 37 through the end of the book, chapter 50 all record for us powerful things through the life and the experiences of one Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. Our aim today is to behold the glory of Christ prefigured in the calling of Joseph. The glory of Christ is seen, I submit to you, in the calling of Joseph, which is the theme of our text today. With that introduction in your Bible and your heart open, or draw your attention to the screen in front of us here today, would you stand out of reverence for the Word of God? Consider in your hearing these words. Stand as you're able and listen to God's holy word, Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He, pastoring the flock with his brothers, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, 
His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Interesting introductory moments to the account of Jacob, or Joseph, in the line of Jacob, where we encounter the calling of this appointed son to show forth God's purposes in the experiences that unfold in subsequent chapters. I think it's helpful to note where we are in the book of Genesis. This is a good opportunity to pause and get our contextual bearings, if you will. So where are we in this first book of the Bible? Well, there's a helpful phrase that gives us a point of reference in verse 2. That phrase would be, these are the generations of Jacob. This is the tenth and final appearance of this telling phrase, these are the generations. This provides us opportunity to situate the account of Joseph in context. The book, this first book of Moses, Genesis, is structured around what you might identify as scene changes, turning points, or something like chapter divisions in the original text. Of course, the Bible, when it was first written, was in scroll form. It didn't have the chapter numbers and verse divisions that are so helpful for us today. Instead, literary devices or ways of writing provided reference points to see the shift in focus in the text. In Genesis 2-4, we get the first of these, at least in this phrase, these are the generations. And I'll read that for you to kind of set the tone. Go all the way back to the creation account where you have this record, Genesis 2-4. Quote, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Isn't that interesting? These are the generations of the heaven, heavens and the earth when they were created. So that reference joins nine other references to generations. This first one is with reference to things that are made, all of the created uh, order, if you will, the cosmos, the world, everything in it, the seas, the creatures, and man himself. This heading is introduced with reference to creation of the heavens and the earth. However, Every other mention tracks a family line, and these are the ones that are highlighted. Just by overview, this is in the introductory paragraph in your notes. If you have a copy, you could study this at a later time. These highlight first Noah, the lineage of Noah, that is, in 6.9. His sons, chapter 10, verse 1. Shem, 11.10. Terah, father of Abraham, 11.27. Ishmael, 25.12. Isaac, 2519. In other words, these are the generations of each one of these individuals. Generations of Esau, which was our theme of our last sermon from Genesis 36.1. Indeed, that whole chapter. And finally, our text today, which reads, these are the generations of Jacob. So today we come to the final reference or the final statement of this kind of division or structure marker in the text. These are the generations. This signals to us that the closing chapter, if you will, of Genesis is upon us. Scholars, furthermore, have consolidated these references, noticing patterns among them, and have helpfully divided the text of Genesis into four major movements or areas of focus in the book. And in summary, these are from Adam to Terah, so from the first man to the father of Abraham. The second major movement follows Abraham's legacy, which you recall, beginning with his own calling out of a pagan land in chapter 12, unto the promised land and that walk by faith. And following through the whole story of his life, the unlikely birth of the covenant son and so forth, we get all the way then to the story of Isaac. So that would be that third movement. We have Isaac and Jacob that are in view. That brings us to our text today, the fourth and final movement, or chapter, if you will, division, in the original structure of the book, the biography of Joseph. Why is Joseph so important? Well, we'll seek to answer that question as the book continues to unfold. Suffice it to say, for now, his life story will continue through the end of Genesis all the way through chapter 50. And I submit to you that a major theme of redemptive hope through the covenant or significant son continues to be illustrated, proclaimed, and prefigured and prophesied in the extraordinary events of Joseph's life. Joseph's life serves as an illustration of the hope of salvation and God's purposes unfolding 
through a chosen son. This is a major theme, hence the stunning events and their meaning as we, un- as we see them unfolded in the text. Perhaps with this context, we could venture a definition or a meaning for the phrase, quote, these are the generations. When you hear this, I suggest we can hear the following. The purposes of God. So what does the author mean, uh, Moses, when he says these are the generations? Well, he refers to the purposes of God unfolding in time, in creation, and in family lineage that serve to reveal his character and further his plan of salvation for sinners. These are the generations of Joseph, a man called to reveal the purposes of God. In the sal- his, uh, revealing his character, God displaying his glory, and secondly, in his plan to further his uh, purposes and salvation for sinners. Another way you could kind of see these major themes is as follows, as creation served as the theater for God's creative glory, and hence that 2-4 reference, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and so is featured in that theater, all of creation, by the word of God's sovereign and creative power, a theater for His creative glory. So the covenant family line from Adam all the way through Joseph and beyond is also a theater. The covenant family line serves as a theater to feature His glory in recreation, in new birth, in redemption and making things whole again, and providing the promise of salvation for a world fallen and broken, depraved and hell-bent in sin. The line of the Messiah will be the theater whereby God will display His creative power, the power to call life from the dead, the power to renew a once broken, dead, stone-cold, rebellious heart. Recreation is going to be featured in the family line, not just as it's continued through the close of Genesis, but beyond. As we see this through line or major theme tying the book of Genesis together in a unified purpose, I suggest this is not limited merely to the book of Genesis. If you notice this theme and read all of the scriptures, what you'll find is certain highlights standing out and becoming prominent in the text. One of them chief among them perhaps thousands of years later, the prophesied era of messianic history is upon us. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, in his incarnation has taken on flesh. He is born of a woman. The era has arrived. And how does Matthew, in the first book, as they are ordered in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 1, introduce this new historical era? This new turning point, this new chapter division and redemptive history, he does so by declaring, quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That book goes all the way back to our passage today and beyond, all the way back to Adam. And that book has the purpose of chronicling God's purposes, displaying his glory, revealing his plan of salvation all the way through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Today we encounter the history of this moment in the life and times of Joseph, a figure in Old Testament history, preparing us to recognize the Messiah when he comes. The story, the legacy, the events that are recorded in Joseph's life prepare us, prepare those faithful believers then to recognize the Messiah when he comes. I've mentioned this analogy before, maybe helpful to remind you of it. If you think of history all of time, in God's providence as a string. The Bible is written like beads or jewels on that string, creating a necklace of His glory. And so it's tied to, time is tied together uh, by His providence and purposes through every era, all under His sovereign hand. Yet featured along this timeline are jewels, the purposes of God revealed in salvation. This is kind of the way the scriptures are ordered. A heading for our text today, the Joseph motif of messianic ascension is introduced by way of three things. Now let me simplify that. The Joseph theme of a risen Messiah is introduced to us in the opening pages of his calling. Motif is an important word. It means recurrent, salient, or important thematic element. Motif is like a literary word. I just want to introduce it to you in case you don't know it. It's an important word in understanding the Bible. The Bible is organized in many 
uh, examples or in many ways around motifs. And there is a major theme, a thematic element, a recurring salient thematic device, if you will, that we see in Joseph. And I suggest, among other things, it exists to reveal to us God's purposes in his Messiah ascending unto glory. Think about it. Before the, the Messiah ascends, he must first come down. He must first condescend. This was pictured in his visitation of Jacob uh, in chapter 35. God condescends to Jacob. He reiterates, he reconfirms his covenant. He ascends unto glory. You see, God is using the experience of the patriarchs to prepare us for the movement, the motif, the theme, the plan to invade history for the purpose of saving sinners. The Messiah, the one who has always shared the glory of God and the, as second person of the Trinity, the, the uh, pre-incarnate glory of the Mighty One will take on flesh, will become a man, will condescend, will stoop low. Just like Joseph, though he shared some glory as the favored son, his robe would be stripped from him. He would be thrown in a pit. He would be made low. He would condescend, as it were, a picture, a type, a symbol. But the ascendance of the Messiah, or the ascension of the Messiah, the ascending, the trajectory, the movement unto glory is also pictured in the big picture of Joseph's life. And I'm sure you know a lot of these details already if you're attentive at all in Sunday school. They're so interesting and compelling, the story reads like a gripping narrative. He's sold into slavery, enjoys some favor in Potiphar's house, only to be betrayed, falsely accused, condemned into prison, thrown in another pit, as it were. That the Lord has favor on his son and lifts him out. And Joseph experiences a sort of resurrection of life, purpose, and calling. And pretty soon, he's a king. Those robes that were once stripped of him in our chapter today are replaced. And they're the robes of kingship, authority. And they're the robes that he wears in his sovereign action, in his policies, in obeying the word of God according to the wisdom given him to be the savior, if you will, physically speaking, of the entire covenant line, having prepared for famine at that time. So that's a kind of a big picture overview. Today we see, however, this motif, this main idea, this big picture view of messianic ascension introduced to us in three ways at least. I suggest, number one, contrast. Number two, conflict. And number three, through special revelation. There's a contrast, as we mentioned in our last message, and this point overlaps with our last sermon. There's a big difference between the generations of Esau, another way to say this, and the generations of Jacob. Chapter 36 opens this way. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And then it says, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Kids, remind us, good idea or bad idea, taking your wives from the Canaanites? Bad idea, that is correct. Why? Because it, sing it, it signals covenant compromise. It signals covenant corruption. God had preserved for himself under specific direction, uh, uh, the parameters of covenant faithfulness, and among them was not marrying idolaters, pagans, unbelievers, but preserving that, uh, the, the oral tradition of his holy word and the promise of the Messiah to share with the next generation and guarding so even through the institution of family. So whereas the generations of Esau stand for covenant compromise, in contrast to these, 37 opens with this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Again, there's a big difference between the generations of Esau and the generations of Jacob. You could use these two categories, and you could analyze and place into one or the other, if you were the Holy Spirit, and knew people's hearts, everyone who is alive today. It's another way of saying there are those who are unbelievers and who are compromised, they're out of covenant favor, and there are those who's got, who God has called, given his gospel to, who have repented and believed and are looking forward to the coming Messiah. Which are you? Are you according, living your life according to, or is your heart such that you more identify with Esau or with Jacob? It's an important question. We see in these two examples, Jacob and Esau, divergent family lines. There's a fork in the road, they're going opposite ways. These are the generations of Esau. And Esau's legacy was marked, as we mentioned, by the following. Pagan intermarriage, covenant compromise, 
covenant estrangement, distancing himself from the place and the person where God had revealed himself, namely Jacob, and the places of covenant significance, the altars and the moments where God in face-to-face encounters, encounters had visited his son. But there's a third thing that Esau's legacy is marked by, and that's growing political influence and power. Notice another kind of contrast in the text. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning. And that's right after the verse 3643. Where did Esau, Esau live? Well, or his lineage. They lived in dwelling places in the land of their possession. Another important distinction. Jacob's sons will be known for salvation unto glory. And the legacy of Joseph in the generations of Jacob holds forth this hope. How will this happen? Well, we see in the story of Joseph, by means of union with their ascended Messiah, there is hope through the sons of Jacob that of salvation unto glory. This, I submit to you, is one of the legacies, perhaps the major one, in Jacob's family line. Jacob's sons, that is, those who are in the covenant, not all of them on a heart level perhaps resonated with this. Joseph certainly did, though. And those whom the Spirit awakened to see the significance, Jacob's sons will be known for salvation unto glory. And this salvation unto glory will be by means of union with their ascended Messiah. I submit that Joseph pictures this. He's a sort of type of an ascended Messiah, union with him, will achieve ascending unto glory. Now, there is a time we will soon see, and early on, where this calling of Joseph revealed through dream was something that his brothers resented, and even his father was skeptical of. However, as the story unfolds, we see that the only way to be saved from famine in the land was to come under the dominion and the rule, to be subject to the authority of Joseph, who God prepared in his ascendancy unto rule to provide a means of physical salvation for all who are in him, so to speak, that is, all who are under his rule. So you see this picture. So that is the calling, and it's largely by faith, and it's one that many of the promises are yet on the horizon. On the other hand, though, there's the Esau trajectory and direction. And we see this distinction even more clearly, perhaps, when we find the places they chose to live. So Edom, Esau, another name, Edom, his nickname, if you will, his family line chose to set up camp in Seir. Later, they were so dominant and overtook the place, chapter 36 records their record of their influence, that it was renamed Edom, that is, the land of Esau, the land of the red hairy guy. Why did they live here? Well, there was a certain appeal. They enjoyed and pursued, no doubt, this promise of political might, influence, and power. They found themselves thriving, in a physical sense, in the land of their possession. However, in Jacob's family, not so much. Jacob lived in a land that was promised to be their possession, but at this time, it was a land of their sojournings. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. That means just passing through or traveling in the land of Canaan. Do you remember that quote last week from, or last time we were here from Matthew Henry that drew a contrast, and in his words, between what you have in hand and what you have in hope? The world sacrifices the promise of salvation for what they have in hand. The heart of Esau denies the truth of a glory yet on the horizon for the promise of a full belly, political power, influence, the American dream, wealth, riches, security, assurance, and so forth right at this moment. That's what the land of Seir and Edom represents. It's a place that you can have right now. Remember what Satan did with Jesus? He took him high upon that place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and he said, I will give you all of these if you do what? Worship me. It was a sort of re- a capitulation, if you will, of original sin. Eve, when she took that fruit, she had something in hand. The promise that it would make her rich and the, delicate, or, and the delightful taste of that fruit. Well, so here's the difference. What would you rather have? Something in hand or something in hope? That's the way Matthew Henry phrases it. 
And this is no, and this concept should not be foreign to us as it ties in to the original call of the patriarchs all the way back to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12.1, what was the nature of the call? It was one of faith. 12.1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a promise, there's a direction, there's a hope, there's a land, but Abraham will go through his whole life and mostly be a sojourner. The only claim, the only deed he will hold at the time of his death, ironically, is a burial place for his wife. Hebrews 12 reiterates this idea. It says, of course, in the beginning, what's come to be known as the Hall of Faith chapter, that we are surrounded by a great cloud, excuse me, of witnesses. And of course, among them is, Hebrews 11, excuse me, and among them is Abraham himself. And verse 8 describes his calling as follows. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And as he went went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. There it is, possession or promise, which is better. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Esau, much like the Tower of Babel, and his lineage and his legacy, they looked and took refuge in a city whose builder and foundations was man. In his power, in his humanism, in his ingenuity, in his rebellion, in the means of his resources, to the greatest extent of his ability, and working through democratic means to establish the best possible future, that's where Esau and his family found their hope and assurance. Not so for those among Jacob's household. Those, according to the generations of Jacob, followed in the lineage of Abraham, looking forward to a city whose designer and builder was God. Where do you find your assurance? Though, you know, the Tower of Babel, there's always an attempt in every generation to rebuild it. There's always a promise of a land of possession. Man is always scheming to provide an alternate means of hope for the future. Man is always coming up with a counterfeit way of salvation, assurance for the soul, the promise for the future, hope of a better life, great investments, you know, and so on and so forth that will produce return in this life. That temptation is before us today. What is better, what you have in hand or what you have in hope? It doesn't matter what generation you're born in, there is always, until Christ returns and we enter into that glorious promised land in full manifest possession, there is always an element of faith, something yet on the horizon. And for us, it is incredible. It is eternal life. It is a new heavens and new earth. It is a co-regency, a ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. It is a sharing in His victorious victory. Uh, Because he is the champion over the grave, having defeated it, and with it our sin. And it is a forever peaceful, not just recreating, recreating the conditions of Eden, but a sort of fullness and maturity of all that God had planned through the second Adam, acquired and accomplished through Jesus Christ. And just like it took faith to believe that a 17 year old shepherd boy held out hope for your family's future, so it takes faith that a crucified Messiah you can't see with your eyes right now is coming back again. But He is. Do you believe it? If you do, and if your heart resonates with that exhortation, then you can count yourself among the generations of Jacob who look forward to what they have in hope more than what they have in hand and are not deceived by the Edom and the Seir and the Esau generations of our day that promise us all the blessings of glory now at the expense of our eternal souls. This is serious. And these are the kinds of things that we learn if we pay close attention. The messianic ascension, the purpose of Joseph's legacy, that which he stands to symbolize, we understand in part by contrast. The difference between the legacy of Esau and the legacy of Jacob, in this sense, could not be more stark. It's divergent family lines. It's possession versus sojourning. And finally, it's strength versus weakness. Notice on the one hand, in, back in our text, at the end of Genesis chapter 36, you have a record of the chiefs. 
the powerful guys, the legacy of Esau, the strong and capable, the ones who have subdued the land, laid claim to it, named it after themselves, conquered kings, set up their legacy, you know, by way of might and power and conquest. You have that and the record of, of, of the same recorded in chapter 36, verse 40, for instance. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. This, this whole passage rings with sort of an intimidating humanistic power and authority, a real political, you know, powerful a legacy of human accomplishment. And then it proceeds to name these chiefs of Timnah, Alba, Jetha, Olibama, Ella, Pinan, Kinas, Timnah, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram, and so forth. The, this is the legacy of Esau. But then there's quite a contrast. That's the strong, but here's the weak. In 37.2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. So you have the chiefs of Edom versus a 17-year-old shepherd boy. Which holds out hope for the future? Which is the best place to set up camp? Which of fortunes and legacy will you tie yourself to? Will you believe the dreams that he tells, even though they're somewhat mysterious to you? And consider them, as it says Jacob did, at least keeping them in mind? Or will you say, this is stupid, and go camp with Esau. Strength versus weakness. Of course, the scriptures say, they have already spoken, the older shall serve the younger, that the purposes of God in glorifying himself are counterintuitive to the means and ways of man, that God uses what is foolishness of the world to confound the wise, and through weakness he perfects strength, and through the unlikely covenant son, power, victory, and salvation is secured. People thought Jesus was weak too. They didn't respect him because he came from a common area. They knew his neighbors. They grew up with his family. His feet got dusty like they did, and his clothes looked pretty much the same. And when he was crucified and when he was persecuted, his visage was marred so much you couldn't even recognize him. Anyways, truly a conquering king, one that could overthrow the authority and empirical grip and oppression of Rome, doesn't look like a common guy who has to walk everywhere and maybe has a range of 100 miles for his entire ministry, does it? Well, just like Joseph was an unlikely called covenant son, so Jesus was. And here we are, saints, 2,000 years later, since the dusty feet of our Messiah graced the Holy Land, proclaiming that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And America must bow before his sovereign authority or she will be judged and crushed. Because we must kiss the sun, lest he be angry in the way. And we proclaim, when we're in the right frame of mind, with authority, that all nations, tribes, and tongues will serve him one day. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, so they better do it now. You, as an individual judge guilty before his perfect righteousness, must repent of your sin and submit to him and believe that he died in your place. And so it is with society and kings, whether they be Edom or America. Recognize that Jesus Christ and his righteous rule and his holy word stands to condemn and to judge. Or it stands as a guilty sentence that you assent to, submit to him and say, in the Joseph to come, in the risen Messiah, in the ascended Savior, I place my hope. He has died for me and he will rule all. And I trust that and believe that with all my heart. So the Joseph motif of messianic ascension is introduced to us by way of contrast. There's the Esau way, there's the Jacob way. There's what we have by possession, there's what we have by promise. You know, the word of God versus the word of man. There's the strength that man can boast in the weakness and the foolishness, even of biblical preaching that can subdue nations and people's hearts and God uses to bring conviction of sin and repentance in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what's pictured in our text today. The Joseph motif is also introduced by way of conflict. Notice these family dynamics. It's kind of dysfunctional again in a way. He, Joseph, was a boy, verse 2, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Who are they? Do you guys remember Bilhah and Zilpah? Well, they were the secondary wives, concubines, if you will, of Jacob. They were the servants. One was the servant of the first wife, but less favored, Leah. The second was the servant of the favored wife, Rachel. So why does Joseph hang out with these boys, you know, his brothers by these two wives? Joseph is the daughter of the beloved wife, I'm sorry, son of the beloved wife, Rachel. Well, probably because there's less animosity and jealousy, and perhaps his father figures, than from the sons of Leah. There's been conflict, turmoil, tension, anger, 
jealousy, hatred in this family for a long time. We've chronicled it as we go through. These family dynamics are kind of setting up a scenario that illustrates to us that we're still in a fallen world. Do you remember one of the first effects of the fall post-Eden? Tension among family members? You know, anger between brothers? Hatred, animosity unto murder? That's, you know, that's not unprecedented. It happened first with Cain and Abel. It happened again, that kind of conflict and tension between Isaac and Ishmael. There was division in the home. There was uh, hard-to-reconcile differences. There was dysfunction in the household. And then, of course, it happened again with Jacob and Esau. And now here it is, showing up yet one more time with Joseph and his brothers. Eleven against one, if you will, or ten against one, uh, excepting Benjamin. And so these family dynamics set up this situation. And part of this is Jacob's fault, you could say. Why? Because he showed favorites. Israel loved Joseph, it says in verse 3, more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And so he demonstrated this favoritism by making him a robe of many colors. Multiple layers going on here. It's interesting to look carefully to see what might be communicated. The favor of God was indeed upon Joseph's life. God had shown particular favor on the covenant son. But notice the difference between the favor of God and the favoritism of parents. The favor of God chooses to do two things, to rescue the lost through an appointed son and to glorify himself through a particular people, not because they are meritorious in and of themselves, but in the mystery of his perfect will. Romans talks all about this. That's the favor of God. The favoritism of man, though, looks on the outside, generally, rather than the heart, or considers the circumstances, and he holds some resentment and some regret for the way life unfolded. No doubt Jacob wished that Rachel could have been his only and beloved bride and that she would have had a whole posse of kids, only bore him two, and the last one cost her her life, and now Jacob, with his heart still fixed in his particular love for his son, excludes the others and contributes to the tension in the home. And as we see this, of course, it's more evidence of sin. And we see also the disparity between the favor of God and the favoritism of man. As we consider these family dynamics, we know that the favor of God, with the benefit, of course, of the whole book, the favor of God on Joseph is redemptive. It's not spiteful or resentful or impartial in the sense that Jacob's is. The favor of God on Joseph is redemptive. By this means of God's particular call of Joseph, the ascension of Joseph unto second in command and Egypt will eventually mean the salvation of famine for the whole family. Would you resent that kind of appointment? Well, you should not. This radical egalitarianism of our world is so wicked and ungodly. If you were to brace it whole hog, you would, be, you would deny the particularities of God's love and his redemptive purposes. God has the absolute right to do what he wills by his vessels. We have no claim to some sort of egalitarian fairness before the judge of all eternity. Not when we've committed cosmic treason as you know, the theologian used to say, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I love that phrase, cosmic treason. We've committed great blasphemy, and we have a death sentence, capital crime punishment of eternal death, hanging over our head. There's no way that we can stand before the court of God and plead anything but mercy, anything but grace. Oh, I deserve equal human rights, you know, and I deserve it because I identify as important, and I am the center of my universe. That is sinful, fallen, rebellious, Satan-influenced, wicked thinking. And our culture is permeated with it. God does not work in this kind of way. No, God works in mysterious ways and appoints as He wills particular attention on those whom He calls. And sometimes He does it to the great benefit of others. The favor that God showed Joseph was the very means whereby He would save the family. Oh, it's not fair that He should be, you know, have all these privileges. You know, all things should be shared equally. Heaven means equal distribution of all material wealth because material wealth is all that is. That's a blasphemy of Marxism that controls the policies and the presuppositions and the philosophies of so much of our day. 
This is not the dynamic in the kingdom of God, so we should recognize the difference. Suffice it to say, these family dynamics and even the conflict sets the stage for God to feature his redemptive power. He's going to save people that don't deserve it and hated Joseph, their coming savior, if you will, at least from famine at this time. Yet what's Joseph going to do? As a picture of Christ, later he's going to offer them forgiveness and grace as he welcomes them back in after a period of testing. Family dynamics, Joseph's testimony also contributed to the conflict. He told on his brothers sometimes, it would appear. Joseph bought a bad report, for instance, in verse 2, of them, his brothers, to his father. That created conflict. Plus this robe, this kind of royal status that was given, this acknowledgement of the favor and the significance of Joseph by his father, based on his partial love, that created conflict as well. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons to show that he gave him a robe of many colors. This robe of many colors communicates to us a certain calling of royalty, however. In spite of Jacob's poor motives, there nevertheless is a picture perhaps of anointing as a king. Joseph was called to wear the robes of royalty. However, this calling in the moment outrages. It provokes his brothers. They resent it. They will take that garment. They will desecrate it with the blood of an animal later. And then they will deliver it as false evidence to their father that a wild creature, wild uh, you know, animal has consumed Joseph. In reality, they have sold him into slavery. So this is nothing new. Cain versus Abel, Isaac versus Ishmael, Jacob versus Esau, Joseph versus his brothers. However, these family dynamics, this conflict, and even this particular appointment of Joseph is all setting the stage to feature the glory of God. There's going to be a stripping of that royal robe and removal of it, but then there's going to be an ascension unto glory and exaltation, and that exaltation is going to mean salvation for all the covenant family. Finally today, Joseph's motif of, of messianic ascension is introduced to us. So that theme of messianic purposes and unto glory is introduced not just by way of contrast and by way of conflict, but thirdly and most importantly, by special revelation or by the word of God. And this takes the shape of two dreams. The first in chap chapter 37, verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream. Kids, who do, you guys, or who do you think gave Joseph this dream? What do you guys think? Was it pizza? or Well, not pizza at the time. Well, some bad lamb that he ate, some spoiled pottage, lentil stew that gave him this dream? No, I agree with you young people. This was God that gave him the dream. I think you have greater, uh, uh, you can assume this from the context as well, because this is the way that God has been speaking to his father. In chapter 28, we have the record of that glorious heaven staircase touching earth dream, where the means of bridging in that picture, the vast, unbreachable, unabridgeable, un un otherwise, chasm between the holiness of God and a sinful man is seen in that picture of God establishing a way of salvation, ultimately, that Jesus would fulfill. So now we have that man, Jacob's son, receiving two dreams. And the first, he dreams the following. Hear this dream, verse 6, that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. So, trivia question again, kids. What is a sheaf? It's a bundle of, anyone know? Shout it out if you know. Grain or something like that. That's correct. So today, in these days, we have hay bales, right? We recently got some goats, so we had to get some square bales, or you see the round bales in the field. It's kind of modern sheaves. So imagine that's kind of the picture here. And we have bundles of grain, as it were, standing in the field. And if you think of a bouquet of pot, uh, flowers tied in the middle, kind of like that, if you get it thick enough, spread out the base, they can stand up. So in Joseph's dream, he sees the central sheaf standing there, and then the others, 11, bowing down to him. We were binding sheaves in the field. Behold, my sheaf arose, stood upright. Behold, yours gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Well, the interpretation of this dream, at least on a surface level, is fairly obvious. The brothers didn't argue with the interpretation, but they sure argued with the relevance of it and resented Joseph as a result. Verse 8, his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? 
Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for the dreams and for his words. However, what they failed to realize is that God was speaking. When God speaks, sinners better listen or they will be judged. When God speaks, sinners better bow and receive, even if they don't understand, and ask that God would reveal it to him or else. These wicked brothers, resenting God's future means of their own salvation, their hearts would change graciously over time. But right now, they were hard. Hard to the fact, resistant to the truth, that God was revealing himself. How was God revealing himself? Well, in this wheat dream, there's some significant things. God is speaking. His word continues, as with the prior generation. And these dreams, I submit, prophetically proclaim the authority claims vested in the covenant line. The dreams of Joseph prophetically record or decree the authority claims that are invested in the covenant line. Do you remember the promise all the way back to Abraham? Kings and people will be blessed, and to Jacob as well. Kings will come from you. There's an authority claim that is invested in the covenant line. And so we should not be surprised when kings arise. In fact, that's a sign of hope and fulfillment. And Joseph's ascendancy unto royalty is a sign of hope that God will fulfill his promise. And of course, that looks forward to the <coughs> king of kings in the line of David. Maybe I should ask this question of the young people. Can you remember another young shepherd boy who was awful young to be anointed king, nevertheless was called David. Very good. Do you see patterns here through the scriptures? Joseph would not be the first unlikely candidate to assume the line of covenant royalty. David, likewise, similarly chosen. Why? Because through the covenant line and through these promises and through these pictures, there was an authority claim invested. Authority over what? Well, wheat, what does it symbolize? Well, I suggest the domain of crops and subduing the earth according to the original creation mandate. Adam, as a ruler of the earth, under the authority of God, was commanded to subdue the earth, to be fruitful, and to multiply. And so the ordinary domain of human authority is in the created realm, things like crops and things like culture. You know, subduing the earth and creating you know, through your means of working with God's purposes in nature, survival and, uh, and produce, animal husbandry by way of shepherding or crops by way of gardening and so forth. So this wheat dream conceives of a domain of authority within this Adam-like call. And what is this picture? The domain of ordinary dominion holds out this hope that not, you know, these sheaves of wheat represent a calling that that uh, Joseph has later. That is, his family, Joseph's family, will be saved from famine by the very wheat, if you will, that he has stored up through his kingly administration, whereby he subdued the earth and stored up enough food to feed the known world who had but asked for seven long years. So there's a, quite the picture here. God was speaking, and he was indicating prophetically his purposes to save down the road. Now, what does this mean? If you're one of Joseph's brothers and famine strikes the land, and you recall that dream, perhaps you put, by the Spirit of God, two and two together. Wait a minute. Remember what we did? We sold Joseph into slavery. Wait a minute. Remember there was that promise, that dream. Perhaps it was from God the same way he spoke to our father. Perhaps through these sheaves of grain, there is a promise of sustenance in famine. After all, we know that God can't ultimately stamp out the messianic line. Let us go and investigate. Well, unbeknownst to them, that's exactly what they did. Not so much moved by their conviction, but by the sovereign hand of God, and discovered that was the case when they arrived in Egypt. Second dream. Verse 9, when he dreamed, Then he dreamed another dream, and told it to his brothers, and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down before me. Okay, now things are getting pretty outrageous. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, so now Jacob, even though he, you know, is his favorite son, probably more inclined to believe and be favorable to his dreams than his brothers, certainly, even he says, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Jacob, a little incredulous, doubting, skeptical. Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to you or come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Ah, that seems a little bit of a stretch, 
even to Jacob at this time. His brothers were jealous of him, but notice this. But his father kept the saying in mind, huh, I wonder if there's something to this. Jacob had enough faith, because God no doubt had spoken to him, to, be for, to him before in a dream, to pause and say, I better file that away. I had an extraordinary dream once too. Doesn't that remind you of Mary? Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. She's promised to be, I mean, the most, uh, the, you know, blessed among women, the most extraordinary miracle in all of her history is going to take place in her womb. I mean, it'd be the hardest thing to believe and the most difficult thing to embrace at the cost of ridiculed your neighbors, trying to explain to them that you're conceived by the power, the baby in you is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what did she do? She kept those things in her mind. So should we. Jacob, in this regard, at least did the noble thing. However, he couldn't uh, help himself in expressing some doubts some skepticism. This dream, though, I suggest, is not just ridiculous from man's point of view on account that, you know, his father and mother, some mothers that he had left, or the wives of Jacob, if you will, would bow down to him one day. But it's even more uh, outrageous through the eyes of man because we've moved beyond the picture of sheaves to heavenly bodies. Remember that verse we opened with? These are the generations, you know, uh, when, of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Among God's early creations were the sun, the moon, and the stars. And they had a certain dominion role. They were to have dominion, as it were, to be the reference point for days and night and, and seasons and so forth. Man, in his unbelief and his paganism, um, misunderstood the role of stars, suns, and moons in the ancient times and worshipped them because they saw them as over and above and transcendent and that fixed order more than they could ever achieve. And to a degree that was true. Of course, there was a higher order still, and that's who they should have worshipped, Yahweh. Nevertheless, the sun, moon, and stars govern the seasons, the order of man. Those sheaves don't grow in the field unless the sun, moon, and stars obey the command, the heavenly bodies the celestial systems that God has set in order, obey his holy command. So we take that analogy, and now we see that there is a domain of authority that is expressed in the second dream that goes beyond the ordinary sheaves, even unto the heavens. And now you can see why Jacob might have taken a step back and said, wait a minute, this is a step too far. Sun, moon, and stars, through the course of the scriptures, they come to symbolize world authorities, powers, <clears throat> the cosmic scope of creation, and the purposes of God in the ordering of the universe, the solar system, the ecosystems of this world. And I submit to you that in this second dream, which is preparing us for the glories of a messianic ascension to come, is this promise, this prophecy. A Messiah king will ascend to rule earth and heaven. A Messiah king will eventually ascend to rule earth and heaven. Now in the short term, in the first fulfillment, it was indeed the case that one day, as it were, jo uh, Jacob and his entire family bowed before the administration of Joseph's second in command of Egypt, and thereby they were saved from famine. However, in the second instance, in the full picture of God's redemptive purposes, there would come a Messiah king in the line of Jacob that was introduced in Matthew 1.1, who had greater power still. He would not just have dominion over the sheaves of the field, but he would have authority and ability to give the bread of life. Let me tell you something. Someone who can promise you eternal life, give you sustenance and provision unto heaven one day, he is not just Lord of the fields. He's, just not, he's not just a wise, dominion-taking farmer, a mere first Adam. No, he's the second Adam. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his rule extends from earth to heaven. He is ruler of heaven and earth. Let us close in considering the authority the power, and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ according to these turns in Revelation 11. Turn with me as we close this message. Here we see a picture of the authority and power and fulfillment of Jesus' work. 
after he accomplishes the work of redemption on Calvary, defeats the grave in his resurrection, and ascends to receive his inheritance unto glory before the Ancient of Days, uh, John in his revelation, his dream as it were, his vision, gives us a sneak peek into the next realm as it were. And among his revelations are these. This is the seventh trumpet blowing in Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. So where are we? We're in heaven now. Who's there? We'll see. The kingdom of the world, this is the voices are proclaiming, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped him, saying, There's a seat of authority which the elders enjoy in heaven, and there's a greater seat of authority in heaven still, which is occupied by the one they worship. And they voluntarily step down from their seats of authority, secondarily, and they offer their crowns, pictures of sovereign rule, they offer their seat in worship, in offering, so to speak, to the one who deserves it, a one greater still. Who is this king that rules over heaven and earth? The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before the Lord, verse 16, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. He's ruling, saints, from heaven over the affairs of this earth, over all of history. And verse 18 says the following, The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The elements, the realm of heaven and earth and all the created creatures from the angelic ones to the exalted elders and whoever else is gathered at this glorious assembly recognizes in this instance what Joseph anticipated in that typological, symbolic form that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would ascend to rule and reign providing salvation for all his people, and on the accomplishment of that task, declare authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation, over every other claim to power and authority, forever ruling over heaven and earth. Saints, we have the benefit of the scriptures to point us to who that is. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of Jacob to come. And I would encourage you that upon the revelation of himself and Holy Scripture, turn from your sin and your skepticism if you're ever tempted to doubt his authority. He not only is the only one that saves you, but he is the one who has the last word over the most intimidating, otherwise intimidating enemy that you will ever face or that history will ever witness. Let us join him, or let us join if you will, those elders in worship and acknowledgement of his authority as we close this sermon in prayer. Father, we acknowledge with our hearts awakened, we pray by the Holy Spirit through the ministry of your word, the authority and power and glory and saving work of our ascended Messiah, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open our eyes to see and appreciate how these truths were laid out in so many varied forms through scripture, including the testimony of Joseph, I pray most of all that as we see these things that you would convict us of sin and bow our knee before your authority and encourage us to go forth as ambassadors of that king and kingdom with boldness. If there are any in the hearing of this message who have been skeptical of the crown rights and claim and the authority and sovereignty and rule of Jesus Christ, I pray that their eyes would be opened to his word proclaimed and that they would repent and plead for you to have mercy upon their souls, and that as they do so, that they would find sweet redemption and glorious promise of hope and salvation in your death, dear Jesus, on the cross for them. We thank you, Lord, those of us who believe in your name, because we have received this assurance of salvation. We, in the lineage of Jacob, spiritually speaking, have experienced that recreation of heart. We have been born again, and for this we are thankful. 
next week as we approach your table, I pray that that means, Lord, would encourage us in the provisions that Jesus Christ and his body and blood have provided for us. Eternal access and for sure an assured safe passage to glory through the bread of life, which is his work on our behalf, dying in our place, crucified for our transgressions, and then rising from the dead in declaration of his sovereign authority. Lord, I pray that in that name, the precious, matchless, incredible, holy, powerful name of Jesus, that we would trust our salvation and also that we would declare our allegiance in his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.